Good morning. It's great to be able to share God's word with us this morning. Uh, we're not going to go through each of those 42 characters, but today we're starting a new series uh, leading up to Christmas, and we're going to be looking at the narrative surrounding the birth of Jesus from the book of Matthew. Uh, if we look at the four Gospels, all of them begin a bit differently, and they highlight a different purpose and theme. And as we look at Matthew today and for the next few weeks, uh, Matthew turns the clock back to Abraham and David, two Old Testament heroes, to show his concern about Jesus fulfilling the Old Testament promises. And one of the big promises that we see here is surrounding the coming of the Messiah. A few days ago in the news, uh, there was an article titled something like, Russian man claims he's the Messiah. And in fact, when you look at his picture, it's a pretty compelling image. But it's not the first time someone has claimed to be Jesus, the Messiah, or the promised one of God. Uh, let me give you a few examples from trusty Wikipedia. Oscar Ramiro Ortega Hernandez. In 2011, this guy fired nine shots at the White House because he thought he was the Messiah and he was sent to kill the US president. Jose Luis de Jesus, a tick for the right name. He's a guy in Florida who claims he's the Christ. But the problem is here that he's got a tattoo saying 666 on his forearm. And he's a bit confused because he also claims that he's the Antichrist. It's another guy, Krishna Venter, in 1948, he claimed to be the Messiah also. And he claimed that he'd led a convoy of rocket ships to Earth from an extinct planet. So even through history and even before Christ, people were pro proclaiming themselves or other people to be the Messiah. In fact, many people over history have put their hands up through either their words or their actions and have claimed to be this Messiah. And as you can see from those examples, most of these claims are ridiculous and they can be dismissed at the blink of an eye. But still, many people are intrigued at spotting who the Messiah is, who the promised Savior King from God is. We come today to this list of potential baby names in Matthew, this genealogy. And to us, it might be the sort of passage that we'd usually skip through. But as we have a closer look this morning, I'd like to suggest that Matthew here is making a bold claim in this genealogy. You see, it's not just a list of names. It's a list with a message. And right here, Matthew is introducing a major purpose in his book. He's addressing this Messiah question. It's a claim that every Jew would have had significant interest in, and a truth that we celebrate during this Christmas season. This is Matthew's big idea. The Messiah, the promised king, from God, who's going to save his people. He's come, and his name is Jesus. Uh, just a heads up today, uh, I'm going to look more at the text of uh, Matthew 1, 1 to 17, and the topic of Jesus welcomes us into his family is uh, one point that really comes out of this passage. But before we dive in uh, into more detail, I just want to point out that the fact that Jesus has a genealogy at all should really speak to us today. Uh, I heard a story of a Bible translator in PNG. 
Uh, he told of the day that they finally finished their translations and they gave out these copies of the Gospels to uh, this people group that they were working with. And some people, they came and approached a translator with their Bibles open and they asked, is this true? Is this right? The translator, they saw that they were looking at uh, Matthew and he replied, uh, actually, uh, you should read John first, maybe something easier to handle. But then someone in the group replied, this is wonderful. When you came and told us stories, we thought they were fairy tales plucked from the air. However, we can now read who Jesus' ancestors were and see him, see Jesus as a real person. So without even getting deep into this passage, we can see through this list of names that Jesus is a real person. Just like in a few verses later, Jesus is described as God with us, Emmanuel, God incarnate, fully God yet fully man. Jesus is real. And he humbled himself to be born as a man to deal with our problem of sin. Just like in the Christmas hymn that we sing, veiled in flesh the Godhead see, held incarnate deity, pleased as man with man to dwell, Jesus our Emmanuel. Charles Spurgeon describes this as marvelous condescension, that God should be a man and have a genealogy, even he who was in the beginning with God, and thought it not robbery to be equal with God. Marvelous condescension. So if you know Jesus well today, then this is and will be a great reminder for you of how real Jesus is, how the God of the universe became flesh and blood, to lay down his life, a sacrifice of flesh and blood for you and me. And if you're still weighing up who Jesus is and what he's done, then take note from this passage because Jesus isn't just some fairy tale story. He's real. He's got real ancestors who existed in real history. Listen to his claims and respond to his free gift of eternal life. So Matthew claims that Jesus is the Messiah. And with this genealogy, Matthew's got the attention of his primary audience in the Jewish readers. You see, genealogies, they're designed to show the purity of one's ancestry, the tribe and the house one was from, and the status or the pedigree of the individual concerned. And this is how Matthew sets it up in his gospel. One of my lecturers wrote uh, a book on Matthew that's incidentally one of my textbooks next year and since I'm Asian and that's the stereotype, I've already started my pre-readings. And I'm going to borrow a bit uh, of his framework as we look through this passage. So the big idea is that the Messiah, the King, who saves, the promised one from God from the Old Testament, he's come and his name is Jesus. And this passage shows that Jesus ticks three important boxes to prove his claim as the Messiah. And the first box that Jesus ticks is that he's from the right line. As we know, genealogies are all about tracing lines. Uh, for the last five years or so, I've been really interested in looking at my ancestry. You see, I'm not the stock standard honky or mando Asian and I didn't really know much about my family background or my people group. 
and I was really surprised to discover a couple of things about my family tree. I actually found out that I have a really strong Christian history. Apparently, I'm the sixth or so generation Christian. In fact, a whole bunch of my people group, the Hakka, not from New Zealand, but from China, they were converted in China in the mid-1800s. And I think I even pinpointed who the missionary was. It was around the time of Hudson Taylor. And these new Christians, uh, my great-great-great-great-great-grandparents, they were being persecuted for their faith, and they fled China and took the gospel to northwest Borneo Island. It's a pretty cool story and a pretty cool line of Christians that I look up to now. And I know some of us here have pretty cool stories too about inheritances and big castles that they are heirs to in Scotland or some part of Europe. But all of these things, they pale in comparison to what Matthew is outlining and claiming here about Jesus. In verse 1, as we see, the summary statement that says, Jesus is in the line of both David and Abraham. And if we miss these two names, we miss the whole point of this genealogy. And it really does become just a list of names. The phrase in verse 1 can be seen as a title to this genealogy and even to the whole book of Matthew. And it can be translated in this way. The book of the Genesis or the new beginnings of Jesus the Messiah. And this stands in contrast to the Roman emperors at the time who promised new beginnings. You see, the birth of Caesar, he was regarded as the beginning of the good news going into the world. And the readers during this time would be forced to think, who really brings good news into the world? Who's really the king, the Messiah? Is it Caesar or Jesus? So these two names, David and Abraham, they were two big heroes with two big promises which overshadow the whole Old Testament. First, we have Abraham and God's promise with him in Genesis 12, verses 2 and 3. You can have a look in your Bibles. It says, I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. You see, all nations will be blessed through Abraham and his line. And in Galatians 3.8, Paul calls this promise to Abraham as God preaching the gospel or the saving message to Abraham. Second here we have David and God's promises with him in 2 Samuel 7 verses 12 to 16. It says, When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I'll raise up your offspring to succeed you your own flesh and blood, and I'll establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I'll establish the throne of his kingdom forever. This promise piggybacks off Abraham's promise uh, by making it specific uh, into a descendant of David who, was, who will establish a kingdom that will last forever into eternity. And here we have in Matthew this genealogy. It traces the legal line from Abraham through David and to Jesus. It's not a full line. Uh, Matthew's carefully picked, it, picked and, uh, the names he's listed. And 
the word he uses here for father of can also be used to say ancestor of. So even though some names aren't mentioned uh, or they're skipped, the line is continuous. It's a legal line, and it traces Abraham, David, through all these characters, and finally lands in Jesus. You see, Jesus has the right pedigree to be the Messiah. He's from the right line. He's a Jew. He's from the tribe of David, the tribe that's promised in Genesis to bring kings. And he's from a specific member in that tribe, the house of David. And if we're looking at Matthew's claim on Jesus as the Messiah, we're heading in the right direction. He's in the right line. He ticks the first box. He's the rightful king. He's got a legitimate claim to the throne as the Messiah. But we still have a problem because if you have a look at the genealogy, everyone from verses 7 to 16 ticks the first box. So Matthew, he's not finished here with his claims about Jesus. So what marks Jesus out from all these other Messiah candidates? Well, some differences are obvious. They're all sinful, but Jesus is sinless. They're all men, but Jesus is God and man. But the second thing that Matthew highlights here is that Jesus came at the right time. He came at God's appointed time. There's a whole stack of promises in the Old Testament in regards to the coming of the Messiah. But how does Matthew show that Jesus came at the right time? Well, at college, uh, again, one of my lecturers loves to ask the question, what's the melodic rhythm of the passage? Uh, during one lecture, he uh, even forced us to listen to a five-minute um, piece of some classic overture, and we had to analyze the movements within the piece. I thought I was studying theological college. But instead of going into a character study today and looking at each of the 42 names here, let's ask the question, what is the whole composition of this genealogy telling us? Well, I think within this genealogy, Matthew presents a complete summary of salvation history in the Old Testament. Have a look at verse 17 with me. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. You see, Matthew has shaped and structured this genealogy to make a point. One commentator illustrates this with the letter N, with three strokes of going up, down, and up. Three complete sets of 14. And each set summarizes a period in salvation history in the Old Testament. Let's have a look at verses 2 to 6. It's an upward movement, moving into the promised land and the establishment of the kingdom. Then 7 to 11, it's going down. It's a downward movement with the split of the kingdoms. Good king, bad king, good king, bad king. Finally to exile and outside the promised land. And finally we have verses 12 to 16. It's a slow upward trend with people moving and returning from exile and rebuilding as we've seen in Nehemiah last term. The structure is complete. It's composed as a full summary of the Old Testament history to introduce Jesus as the fulfillment of it. For anyone who knows Old Testament, 
this genealogy is purposely crafted and shaped to say, here's salvation history, and it all points to Jesus. Even the number of names used in this list have been purposely selected to point to Jesus. You see the number 14, it seems to be a device used by Matthew in this whole structure. Remember, this list is not a full presentation of the line. Matthew's picked and chosen these names to make a point. In Hebrew, the words, each word has a, a numerical value, and it's the sum total of the values of the consonants. Uh, you can read more if you want later. The word David has uh, the numerical value of 14. So as the Jews read this genealogy, it's really easy to remember, 14, 14, 14. And it's a subliminal hint. It's about David. It's about the king, the royal line, and it's about his heir and the structure. It just points to and lands at Jesus in verse 16. This might be a bit more subjective, but if you look at verses 7 and 10, uh, there's two names that stick out in this passage. What is meant to be King Asa is changed to be the prophet Asaph. And also in verse 10, the king Amon is changed to be the prophet Amos. Some commentators say it's a mistake. Uh, others say it's done on purpose. Uh, the original manuscripts, they disagree with each other. But just for your information, and I wouldn't hang too much off this, uh, but it's intriguing to think about what if these two kings' names were purposely swapped for these two mouthpieces of God and his word. Asaph, who's a psalmist who foretold judgment and mercy, and Amos, a prophet who foretold judgment and restoration. Are these inserted here to highlight fulfillment of the word of God, that the time is right? Regardless of this bit of info, we can see through the whole composition of this genealogy, that, and also in the rest of the book of Matthew, that Jesus came right at the right time. You see, God is sovereign over history, and Matthew structures this list to say that the scene is set, the preparations are done and complete, and in fact, all of these preparations in the Old Testament, they point to none other than Jesus. Paul summarizes it well in Galatians 4, verse 4, when he says, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so we might receive adoption as sons, when the fullness of time had come. Now we've ticked two boxes. He's the right line, and he's come at the right time. And the last box to tick is that he's also the right design. Back to my fascination about my ancestry. Uh, over the past years, I've gathered lots of random facts about my family tree and my people group. I mean, I found out I had a thoroughly Christian history. And I also found out lots of things in respect uh, to uh, the Hakka people group of China. But I also found out things that I wish I didn't know. I saw how families can be messy and broken. Even my family, messy and broken. I was also ashamed uh, to find out that many centuries ago, uh, some extremists uh, in China who had Hakka origins 
thought that he was the son of God and started a rebellion against the Chinese emperor. He's not a Tan, so I'm pretty sure I'm not related to him. But family trees can be messy and broken. Every family has their oddities. People are sinful to the core. And as we read through this family tree of Jesus, you'd imagine it to be some perfect, pure, righteous line of do-gooders and godly people. But as we read it, in reality, that's not really the case at all. The men who are mentioned, even the heroes that we know, they're all marred by sin. Abraham was a polygamist who lied about his wife twice. And his son Isaac, he copied the same trick and lied about his wife also. David, the man after God's own heart, he was an adulterous murderer. Then we have a whole bunch of bad kings and lesser known, uh, but likewise sinful men mixed in the lot. This is Jesus' family tree, guys. It's messy, it's broken, it's got sinful human beings. You see, Jesus doesn't shy away from the mess of sin. He's not ashamed of it. He's not too good for it. Matthew doesn't hide this, but in fact, he makes it a big point in this passage. In fact, this is exactly why and for whom Jesus came. Not for the righteous, but to save sinners from the penalty of sin. If we keep looking at these names, uh, there's four women mentioned from the Old Testament, and uh, the fact that women are mentioned at all in this genealogy would be a huge shock to the Jews. You see, Jews uh, in Jewish and Greek culture at the time, women were never mentioned in genealogies except to show purity or to add some dignity to the line. In fact, if Matthew was going to add any women, it should have been the four great matriarchs from the Old Testament, Sarah, Rebecca, Rachel, and Leah. But Matthew here, he goes for a fresh and new remix of the great matriarchs by including Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and Bathsheba. And here are some quick notes about these four characters. First, they're all women. Matthew includes women into Jesus' family tree. Secondly, they're all Gentiles. Tamar's a Gentile in Genesis 38. Rahab's from Jericho. Ruth's a Moabite. And Bathsheba's legally a Hittite by marriage to Uriah. They're all Gentiles. Jesus has Gentiles in his family tree and includes Gentiles into his new family also. And this runs in line with Abraham's promise being fulfilled, a seed to bring blessing and hope to all nations. Thirdly, just like the messy and sinful men that were mentioned, uh, these women also contribute to this messy and sinful family tree. We have victimized Tamar. She pretended to be a prostitute to trick Judah into giving her lawful offspring. We have converted Rahab, a former prostitute who eventually feared God and became a woman, a woman of faith. We have Good Ruth, a, Mo a Moabite, uh, a group of people who were known for their sexual immorality and sin. And we have used Bathsheba, who was taken advantage of by David and involved in adultery. What a mess, what a broken and diverse family tree. Sinful and broken, men and women, Jews and Gentiles. And yet this is what Matthew highlights purposely. You see, Jesus is the right design 
to, to be the Messiah, to be the Savior King. He's fully God, he's fully man. He's sinless, but he belongs to a family of sinners, a whole diverse bunch of people. And this is exactly who Jesus came for. All sinners, men and women, Jews, Gentiles, all the unrighteous, the kind of people mentioned in this genealogy, messed up and broken people. Maybe today you're thinking about how God couldn't possibly love someone as bad, as messy or as sinful as you. Or maybe it's someone in this fellowship. God loves all of us, however messed up we are. We're a messy, broken and sinful family held together, and just like Scott mentioned before, uh, we're cleansed only by the blood of Christ. Or maybe it's someone in your family or your friend. Could, po- could, could God possibly love someone mess- as messy and as broken as them? But that's exactly the kind of people that Jesus welcomes into his family. That's the right design of a Messiah that we get from God the kind of Messiah that we need, one to deal with our greatest problem, sin. You see, we can't deal with it ourselves. Paul paints it black and white in Romans. He says, all have fallen short of the glory of God. We all need someone to deal with our heart problem, our sin problem. And Jesus is the Messiah with the right design. He didn't come to deal with the Romans. He didn't come to help build our own, help us to build our own kingdom or for us to think positive or to get rich. No, that's not the Messiah that God promised in the Scriptures. That doesn't help us with our standing with God at all. But he did come to deal with an even greater problem, our sin. And that's what we really need to do when we come and celebrate Jesus this Christmas. We have such a great message to share with those around us. That's why we want to invite our families and our friends to Carol's Night and to the Christmas services. We want them to hear this great message of God's open arms, the birth of the Messiah, who will take away the sins of the world by laying down his own life on the cross. And he welcomes us all into his family, once facing the judgment, now given hope, once outside the promises, now invited into God's family, once marginalized by society, now given value and identity in Christ, once lost, now free and found in Jesus, once dead and now alive in Christ. This is the kind of Messiah that God sends us. Jesus ticks the box. He's the right design. So we began this morning by trying to sift through Matthew's claim that Jesus is the Messiah, that the Messiah has come. So just to wrap up today by saying that Jesus ticks all the boxes to be the Messiah. He's from the right line. He's got a legitimate claim to David's throne. In other words, Matthew is saying that Jesus is the king. So let me ask you today, is Jesus the king in your life? What do you make of Jesus today? Do your words, do your actions, do your priorities make Jesus the king in your life? He's come at the right time. All of salvation history, all that God's been doing in this world 
the whole Old Testament, it points to Jesus. Is that how you read God's word today? Is your theology or your thinking about God, is it centered on the saving message of Jesus? Jesus is also the right design. His family tree is made up of a mixture of broken, messy, and sinful people. Men and women, Jews and Gentiles, heroes and villains, all broken people. And that's who Jesus came to save. Do you know that Jesus welcomes messy and broken people into his family? Jesus is the right design. He's come to save sinners like you and me, those in our families and in our communities. No one is outside the saving reach of Jesus, no matter who you are or what you've done. Jesus has come to save messy and broken people, and he invites all of us into his family to come as you are, as I am, messy, broken, and sinful. And we come to be saved by grace, this great gift that God gives, totally undeserved. Jesus is the Messiah, the Savior King. But the question I want to ask as we finish today is, is Jesus your Savior King? Is he your Messiah? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your love for us, that despite our sin and our mess and our brokenness, you sent Jesus to be born as a man, to die on the cross, to rise again, so that we can be part of your forever family. Not because we are worthy, but because Jesus is worthy, and he gives us worth through his atoning blood. We're so grateful that you've orchestrated history around this grand salvation plan that ends in Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the Savior King. Help us to center our lives around Jesus. Help us to proclaim his saving message to the world, to all peoples, especially during this Christmas period. That no one is outside the saving reach of Jesus and that salvation can be found nowhere else. Let us give you glory this Christmas for sending Jesus. And we pray these things in his precious name. Amen.